I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and before we begin, uh, just a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you on this day, Lord God, we pray that, Father, Lord God, that you would indeed speak, and you would grant us ears, Lord, to hear what the Spirit has to say. Extend thy hand, Lord God, to convict and to exhort and to admonish and to challenge and even to save today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 has been referred to as the high watermark of the New Testament and absolutely is perhaps one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, and we're going to be looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And if you read Romans chapter 8, Paul really brings to light the role of the believer, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And he brings it across in three particular ways. One in our lifestyle, living according to the Spirit versus living according to the flesh. You'll find that in verses 4 through 5. He brings it across in our mindset, the mindset on the flesh versus the mindset on the Spirit. And you'll see that in verses 5 through 7. And then he brings our position to us, right? Being in the flesh versus being in the spirit. And we see that in verses eight through nine. But within the first four verses, there is a key verse that I want to point out to you. I don't think many people recognize it. And it is verse three. And verse three reads as follows. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God and I'll insert there, did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin and condemned sin in the flesh. And these are the opening salvos that Paul follows as he starts going through the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Now, I have to qualify, and time forbids me to do so, but in order to understand Romans chapter 8 in its context, it's critical you, you understand the entire epistle, but particularly chapters 6, 7, and 8. And if you remember in chapter 7, Paul was talking about what the law could not do. It couldn't stop that insatiable desire for sin. It couldn't stop him from doing the things that he wanted to do, but in, in return, him doing the very things he didn't want to do. So as we come into chapter 8, we see immediately right here the first verse that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And Romans 8.1 is one of those verses I like to say that everybody knows, but very few understand, right? We, we, we shout, hallelujah, no more condemnation, right? We're not under the penalty of sin anymore. We're not under the penalty of God's judgment anymore. We're not under the penalty of death. I think it's critical to realize in verse one that therefore, therefore becomes a key word. It becomes a pivotal word. Therefore, I like to tell people as you want to see it, it's in light of what I just told you. Well, what did Paul just tell them? Well, it reverts back to Romans chapter seven, where Paul tells them, you know, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Oh, thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, myself, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then Paul immediately, contextually, it's continual, right? Jumps into, hey, I got great news. 
There's no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And I think all of us would echo that. We would echo that fantastic, stimulating, great news, right? We, if we are believers, are indeed saved. We are saved from the penalty of God's sin. We are born again. We have become children of God, as Paul is going to point out later too. In verse 2, he says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We have been freed from the law of sin of death, the rule of the spirit of the life. Through the law of faith, the Holy Spirit of God begins his work in the believer's life. And I want to call your attention in particular to the second part of that verse. For it says here, for the law of the spirit of Christ hath made me free. Done. Finished. Complete. It is an action taken by God that makes us free. And I always say, praise God that God did not save, and then we have to work it out on our own. You know, hey, I saved you up to your point, and I, I, really, I, I really pity for those people who believe that salvation is not an eternal work of God. It is an eternal work for God. Only God can justify. Only God can sanctify. So we have that assurance. The assurance isn't that once saved, always saved. The assurance is, are you saved? That's the assurance that we need to have with Christ. Here we see in verse 2 kind of a positional statement. Hey, the law of the spirit of life hath made me free from the law of sin of death. Something that we can rejoice to. Something that we can um, know that if you are in Christ, you are a benefactor of so great, so great a salvation. So we have been freed, not only from the penalty and the consequence, but we have been freed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, from the bondage, the dominion of sin in our life. And then we get to verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I love this verse, and if you haven't underlined it in your Bible, please do so, because here, again, we're going to see how God's positional truth works out in our everyday life. First of all, as I said, for what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, the implication is God did it. God did. Some other translations actually say that. They'll italicize God did. How did he do it? Well, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for, for, uh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What was it that the law could not do? That's the question that needs to be answered. What couldn't the law do? Well, the law could not bring about holiness. The law could not bring about righteousness. The law could not bring about justification. The law could not bring about right standing with God. That's critical. That's what Romans chapter 7 is all about, what the law could not do. And I rejoice in the fact what the law could not do, God did, and he did it. Our human works, the law was weak in the flesh, in that our human works could never attain to the righteousness of God. 
you know, the blessing of Christianity, where I would qualify biblical Christianity, the blessing of biblical Christianity and its difference from all the other religions of the world is this. All the other religions of the world you, it smells funny in here. what you must do to attain the righteousness of God. Biblical Christianity tells you what God has done to attain that righteousness with God. And I want to cause your mind here because what we see here through offering his son, sin itself was condemned. That word means that it was decisively judged. God judged sin. It was condemned. And consequently, the consequences of sin, the penalty of sin, and the dominion of sin was finalized. It was done with. And this is what we would call a positional truth, meaning it is something that is in actuality true. Theologically, this is true. And what we're going to see here, particularly in verse 4, he tells us why. He tells us why and how. And the why is this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And here is a really great truth, and it becomes a little bit clearer when we look at it, the original languages. Now, I'm not one who's always, you know, reverting to the original languages or pulling out Greek technicalities, but this is worth noting. When Paul talks about in verse three, for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the Greek verb that he's using is in the past tense. It's, it's a finished item. It's completed. But now as he goes in verse 4, and he says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, he uses a different verb tense. He uses a present imperative. And what the comparison is, is simply this. God has indeed accomplished these things through Christ. But God does indeed use his people in the present to currently demonstrate those things in Christ. Verse 4 tells us that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. God's righteousness, God's right standing, God's justice might be fulfilled in the believer. Another way to put it is that the believer reflects the moral character of God by virtue of the new birth. And how is that brought about? It is brought about by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes that enabling agent that God uses to bring about transformation and moral righteousness of God in it. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin in our behalf, that what? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And all the church has to learn that to be right in Christ is not just merely positional truths. They're not theological truths that we, we apprehend on, but God takes those theological truths and he works them out. He demonstrates them in our life, day in and day out, the more we yield to Christ. 
What a glorious truth. I always pray, Lord, grant that thy servants may speak thy word with all boldness so that the glory of God would be translated, that it would effuse from every pore of our being, and that men and women would immediately say, what's different about you? And then men and women may be drawn to Jesus Christ. All who come to faith in Christ become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And what a tall order that is to fulfill. But God has not left, the, left us to fulfill that on our own. He has given us the person of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. So what's the point? What's the application? Corporate prayer meetings are not so that we can all come together and kind of relieve our burdens among each other and, 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 and kind of, you know, come together and just say, oh boy, I feel so good. I'm with like-minded people. Corporate prayer meetings should be that believers come together to seek the mind of God and power for living through the person of the Holy Spirit so that we might walk according to the Spirit, set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and be led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Why? So that God would be glorified through us who walk not according to the Spirit, uh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And in doing so, we experience in our daily lives not only what Christ has already accomplished for us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we declare through our lives what Christ is doing in us now. I always tell my church, Christianity is not a, a spectator sport. All Everybody in Christianity is on the field engaged in the game. Remember this. Remember Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do. What we could not do in our ability, what we could not do in our flesh, what we could not accomplish in our desires, God did. God did. Two of the most glorious words, God did. And God has accomplished, God has, is already accomplished in us and is accomplishing his perfect righteousness through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. So church, Friends, I beg you, I beseech you, I implore upon you, cry to God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your lives, that you will, as Peter said, declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God bless you.